Hey everyone, welcome back to the Primate Cast. On today's podcast, the Primate Cast co-host and producer of Conservation Voices, Dr. Cecile Sarabian. Evolution. Communication. Cognition. Conservation. Behavior. Primatology. Primatology. Typically primates. Become the monkey. Okay, well thanks everyone for joining me on the Primate Cast. This is podcast number 59, and the release date is Thursday, December the 9th, 2021. I'm really excited to be able to present this installment of the Primate Cast to you because I'm actually joined by none other than my fellow co-host of the Primate Cast and producer of Conservation Voices for the Primate Cast, Dr. Cecile Sarabian. Cecile just finished up a postdoc sponsored by the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science here at Kyoto University's Primate Research Institute, um, where she spent pretty much the better part of the last nine years with us um, conducting research. Uh, So there's kind of a good deal of tripping down memory lane in this podcast, but I promise that we did try to stay focused a little bit and talk about some pretty cool science that she's doing as well. So Cecile's made a bit of a name for herself internationally as a pioneering researcher focusing on the evolutionary origins of hygiene and disgust in the animal kingdom, especially in primates. So we talk about this research, including some of her experimental results, you know, some discoveries she's made after presenting subjects with some pretty intriguing foraging decisions involving gross contaminants like feces and rotten food. Um, And these have garnered a fair amount of appeal in the popular media as well. You can see a couple of those if you look at the show notes uh, on the podcast website. But in the podcast, we also talk about Cecile's own development and the importance of mentors. And I promise I'm not tuning my own horn here with that one. Um... But we spend some time talking about someone that's very important to Cecile, the late Dr. Val Curtis, who worked at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, and, you know, her work in, uh, in, in origins of disgust in animals and humans, uh, and also her activism and work with, you know, humanitarian work, um, trying to help uh, people develop sanitary behaviors um, around the world, especially in places like India, for example, really inspired Cecile not only to think about research, but also to how to apply her research to forces as a force of good in the world. And so we talk about that in the podcast as well. So you've heard from Cecile quite a bit uh, over the years on the Primate Cast and Conservation Voices, but this time I'm happy that we can have her in the interviewee's chair for a a turn of events. And I hope you all enjoy um, this episode with Dr. Cecile Sarabia. And just before we get into the interview, I want to highlight that you might notice some audio loss or quality loss um, in this uh, this interview. We couldn't use our regular studio setup, so we had to revert to uh, uh, a handheld recorder. It's definitely listenable, though, so I don't want to discourage anybody from sticking around, but just to keep that in mind. So here's the interview. So for the listeners, I'm, I'm sure we don't need a big introduction of you. You've been around here at the Primate Cast for quite some time. And so 2012 was the first time that you, you turned up here. And can you maybe just talk about how that happened? What was going on in your yes, life? I think, uh, yeah, I was an undergraduate student from France. Um, and I was joining the Koshima Macaque Project with a certain ad- advisor named um, Dr. Andrew <laughs> McIntosh. So... That's how I got the opportunity to, to come here and later to go down to Koshima. But my first kind of 
even interface with Japan was the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. And I was just, as an undergrad, the first time I heard about this institute was during um, a lecture, I think, at the University of Rennes in France, where I was doing the first year of my master's. Mm -hmm. And I heard about the um, Koshima macaques doing this sweet potato washing mm -hmm. behavior. And then I got, yeah, I got interested into Japanese primatology, how, how it started. Um, and since that, I think I was, yeah, I was just super excited to come here and to finally maybe see or meet all the people from whom I've seen publications. Um, it's neat because, you know, in the Department of Ecology and Social Behavior, for example, uh, over the years, we've, we still have many of the, and have had many of the retired professors who've stuck around and still attended seminars <laughs> yeah. and things. I know you yourself, uh, you know, became close with Yukimaru Sugiyama and we go on runs with him around the town yeah. of Yama. He's well into his 80s now, and you still see him out there every day on his on his daily runs. Um, so I, I feel like that, you know, it's a very unique place from that respect. And, and, you know, those people take you back to the beginnings of primatology in Japan and so many of those iconic stories, like you mentioned, the, the sweet potato washing and wheat washing in Koshima, where you ended up. Um, but also, you know, somebody like Sugiyama-sensei was you know, doing field work in India and he was one of, he was basically the person who first described and observed infanticide, um, had a little bit of a different interpretation than the one that came out of uh, Sarah Hurdy's uh, uh, ideas and, and books and, and papers from Harvard, but uh, it really takes us to this historical places of primatology. Yes, yeah, definitely. So you, you have the opportunity to meet this, yeah, this, this people in, in person. Um, and I, I remember my first uh, kind of introduction to PRI, or where I, I also discovered this this library on the third floor, where <laughs> completely dedicated to yeah primatology from different angles. But uh, I was thinking, wow, it's so cool to have such such resources only uh, yeah only dedicated to the to that field. And I was really impressed by the those corridors that you can automatically open <laughs> and then who would line up like the famous journals in the field from mm -hmm. back from the even the 50s or the 60s mm -hmm. so you have all the collections so this was yeah this was super nice and uh, and going around and being introduced to to different people who at first I wasn't maybe really sure who who they were or I only <laughs> knew them by name or I thought I, I, I knew <laughs> yeah this this happened with David, David Hill, <laughs> who might be mistaken from to another uh, professor named Professor Hill. <laughs> so yeah, some funny anecdotes. Um, I'm sure he's good humored enough to not take it yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a bad way. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the parasite lab, the chimpanzee lab, like um, all these kind of historical places um, and people. So, so we definitely not, yeah. Not forget that for sure. But you are so when you first came here, um, you didn't actually spend time at the I mean research institute itself in Uniyama. You went, I think, straight to Koshima, right? If, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, almost, almost. I think a couple of days or mm -hmm. weeks at, at the dorm, so yeah, mm -hmm. just below where we are. <laughs> and and then I went, yeah, I went straight to Miyazaki Prefecture um, and to the Ichiki Village, where at the the field station. For the Koshima Macaque project is um, is based, and um, I think I was there for a couple of months first mm -hmm. on 
not on my own, but I was um, was the manager of this the, the station, Suzumu uh, Sen, um, and uh, and me in the beginning too. Yeah. That was you might remember. I we yes. spent a month there. Yeah. Um, I had my my son was only <laughs> less than a year old at the time, or <laughs> about a year old at the time. Uh, yeah, maybe it just turned one, or even had his birthday down there, uh, uh, around that time, and I remember. Koshima is an interesting place because on the one hand, it's this island which is not far away from the mainland. It's right there. Mm, we have a field mm, station mm. right near the beach that goes there. Um, yet we still have to take boats there. And unfortunately in October, September, October is a time when typhoons are still yeah. rolling around. And because of the nature of that, the, the geography there, it stops us getting access from the mainland to the island. So we ended up spending a lot of time at the field station or not being able to go and then I think my son came down with the Teashi Kuchibyo. It's the hand, foot, and mouth disease that put me out <laughs> after I'd caught it as well. So it was, it was kind of not the best start that we had to your research career here so far. <laughs> yeah, but... Maybe you have a different impression. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really remember all, all this. Um, I definitely remember the first time like we set, or I set foot on, on the island. I had my GoPro mounted on my head. I was yeah, right from before we took the boat and yeah it was it was very nice to to finally see the space live um that i've seen in, in my lecture so by the way that that's a really f cool experience for a supervisor as well when you <laughs> i mean for myself going seeing that beach you know emerge uh yeah. from around the the kind of small peninsulas on the island is pretty impressive with the monkeys there you know getting ready to get their food but yeah. seeing it in all of the you know, subsequent generations, quote unquote, uh, in the academic lineage was also pretty cool. So you were, I think, probably the first person that I was able to take <laughs> to the <laughs> island and have that experience with. But it's always fun to see people. You always get that kind of lighting up expression. So yeah, if you if you don't know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much history there and and uh, and in this room. So yeah. But yes, yeah, so that, that that project in Koshima, and I think after, I mean, you stayed maybe like a week or in the beginning, something yeah. like that, and then I was, yeah, I was, um, I was on my own with the, with the staff in the station, but also the people in the village, and and I think that's where I had to learn the most Japanese I could <laughs> to interact with the people, or even just to set at what time would be the boat the next morning with the with the boat drivers mm. and fishermen. Um, so this was like. Uh, yeah, a wonderful first experience in the in the countryside of Japan near this small island. That's um, beside research, where I also have made my first um, friends, first experience regarding climatic events as well, like first earthquakes mm. <laughs> were happening in the field station. I remember right. <laughs> it was like the inside of the of the living room kind of shaking, and I was like, "Wow, that's when." Um, yeah, the manager explained me that I would have to <laughs> to go up the hill in case <laughs> there is any big alarm or something. So it was a yeah completely new new experience for for an undergrad student. Um, it's just and 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 on the island as well. So you could either you could sometimes not go to the island because of um, because of the weather or the con the condition, but you could also get stuck on the island. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that time where <laughs> I got stuck on the island itself, and and at that time. Yeah, I bought a, few, uh, a small cell phone, but it was not uh, the connection wasn't good, right. and I didn't know when would be the next day <laughs> where I could be picked pick, picked up. Right. 
So this was a bit, yeah, I think I, almost a week there uh, I spent it. And, um, and, and I think it's, uh, I was reflecting on that after like, uh, it's probably the longest time period maybe in my life I had without any <laughs> physical, <laughs> social interaction without any human being. So it's kind of uh, an interesting experience. Good thing you had an incredibly, uh, another incredibly social species. Exactly. <laughs> not, not to say that, suggest you were interacting no. with them necessarily, but. No, but I remember I was following them and because think about like not speaking for a week, for example, yeah. when do you do that? Maybe on some kind of retreat or that's where we are. So remember that I was thinking loudly while I was uh, following them at yeah, sure. <laughs> then you picked me up so that was okay. <laughs> I think this is probably an experience that many a field worker has, has kind of come across but I don't know something is unique about the way it happens on Koshima for sure it's just that that weirdness of being so close to everything but yet so far away at the same time um, but so being on Koshima I mean you flash forward nine years and you know since that time when you first arrived you've managed to cultivate like a really impressive uh, research paradigm and actually have become one of the pioneers of that. Uh, and that research paradigm is about, you know, investigating parasite avoidance through, uh, and you can just say it, the emotion of disgust. And so back at that time, maybe that's not how it was being thought of or framed, but so maybe you can walk us through like what led to the, the earliest observations and experiments that you had there that that's kind of laid the seed or planted the seed for this, uh, this yeah. idea. So I was collecting data for the Koshima Macaque project when I was doing focal uh, sampling. Um, so I was by, by the way, we should clarify that when yeah. you say Koshima Macaque project, I'm sure nobody knows it it's okay. <laughs> because it, it's not it's not really uh, out there as as such. But that was a project that I started that was funded by the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science and was interested in looking at the um, relationships between sociality and parasite infection and then also the influences that parasites might have on the fitness, the, the health, the reproduction, um, the survivability of uh, and, and body condition of macaques on the island and so that was the general context that kind of brought you there but yeah um, so I was following the macaques from dawn to dusk um, I was um, doing 15 minutes focal sampling and I was also collecting fecal samples for, for the project um, yeah for a couple of months I was just interested in, I mean, I, I had very broad interest and I, I, I was, I also started thinking what I could, I could do for, for my, for my own project, um, or to develop my own project. And, um, what kind of interested me the most were like some of these anecdotal, more anecdotal behaviors. Um, and as maybe some of um, the listeners know or don't know, but, um, Japanese macaques, but maybe the macaque genius in, in, in general have lots of interesting behaviors um, related to food and like food processing behaviors. Um, and the Japanese macaques on, on, on Koshima would, would do yeah, lots of uh, so washing, the, the sweet potato washing behavior is, is a famous example mm -hmm. of it, but um, uh, also acorns in, in the forest, um, they also catch some big earthworms called mm. uh, mimizu that they also have a, a way to to process before 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 ingesting or even sometimes they would catch catch fish or even like uh, puffer fish and mm -hmm. i was really intrigued into how they they get rid of um yeah basically or seemingly what they don't like um 
or what can be either um, toxic or dangerous to them and then yeah only eat the good parts of it if i can say can you so just for the listeners can yes. you describe because we've both seen this and marveled at it but can you describe what it looks like to see a macaque processing one of those giant japanese earthworms yes definitely so yeah and i had a talk recently with a, with a student here about that um so it seems to be either opportunistically like um there is a season like um early fall on the island where these big black earthworms are quite common you would see them scrolling around and it seems that when they appear atop the leaf litter, like I was following yeah, some of the females and when they would see one appear, they would just catch it. And, uh, and once they catch it, they have this way of um, stretching it repetitively, uh, rubbing it within their two hands, removing the head with their teeth, spitting it out, uh, stretching it again, maybe until separating it into two pieces. Um, and then they would flatten it on some rock or substrates to to discard the intestines and, and yeah the insides. If there is a water stream nearby, they may yeah carry it over and then rub it in within the water. Uh, and then they would only eat the skin. So there are lots of uh, potential hypotheses to why they may they may do so. But but this is yeah one of the most uh, interesting food processing behavior I've, I've seen on on that island. Um, and as I mentioned, yes, so they, they would do so with, with other, other food items. And I was, yeah, I was really, really interested into that. And then there were some other anecdotes happening um, because these macaques, one of, there are two troops on the island of about 15 individuals. And one of these troop is provisioned with grains of wheat, so two to three times a week. And interestingly, so when the grains of wheat are distributed on the beach, um, the the beach would also became the the area of potential um, conflict so conflict and stress means uh, potential defecation so you would have lots of feces around it's great for researchers we can collect lots of, <laughs> lots of samples but interestingly you would also have some grains of wheat uh, which would by accident just as they are distributed uh, hit the top of feces and it was kind of funny to to realize at the end of the feeding time that um, the, the, the sandy floor would be <laughs> completely clean of grains of wheat, but only those atop feces would remain. So I thought, hmm, interesting. Seems like the macaques would not, would not, would not eat them, would not touch them. And then, yeah, a few more observations, like uh, uh, a female I was following who would by accident put her back foot into one of these mm -hmm. conspecific feces as she was feeding and then she just crossed all the beach on her three <laughs> uh, legs she found the dead tree trunk and she meticulously wrapped her her back foot mm -hmm. on that and repeatedly really smelling it and rubbing it <laughs> and smelling it and rubbing and that's how it does this idea or this interest for for the origins of disgust and hygiene just emerged mm -hmm. um and then i did some literature research that's how i found more about about the theory or about um the work of uh, Val Curtis, who was part of my PhD committee as well, mm -hmm. based at, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who wrote a lot about the, mm -hmm. the origins of disgust. Then I thought, yeah, great, I have my, my master's project, and that's how I guess we, we continue yeah. working on that. We'll, we'll come back to Val a, a bit later, I think. But uh, So back to the, those observations, I remember when you first floated me the idea. So the whole point here was you came to work on this project, but I was pretty adamant that, you know, since you also wanted 
to get experience in research and and um i thought it was important that you also design your own study for a master's uh, project and so you did that and that was what you took off with so you designed these experiments which you can explain in a minute but i remember when you first floated the idea you might remember too i mean kind of looked at you like you know i was very intrigued and interested and i thought you know all of that same stuff that you just said was really interesting but i also was a bit skeptical because you can imagine how it comes off to others and the idea that you know testing whether a monkey would be aversive to feces whether it's its own or some other you know it almost seems like something so obvious but yet there are some profound questions that arise from from doing that simple work that you did so so what kind of experiments did you set up on koshima beach yeah so i started with um so three kind of experiments slash behavioral observations the the first one um was this feces avoidance experiment where I would, since the beach was anyway the um, the, the ground for <laughs> for feces, I, I, I just would um, collect some fecal samples um, from yeah from from the macaques and then design a kind of partially isolated areas from the rocks. So I would attract um, the the targeted subject to, to that area. So you would be hidden from, from other subjects and then I ha I would line up I would have already lined up on, on the sandy floor these three items. Um, one of them was this fresh conspecific feces. Another one was a feces plastic feces replica mm. which would have yeah similar range of colour and shape although looking maybe somewhat different. So we'll come back to that. And the control item was a piece of brown plastic notebook. So same material, uh, probably similar smell, same range of color, but very different shape. Mm -hmm. And then I would dispose on each of them, atop each of them, either a grain of wheat, which I, I started with, um, or half a peanut. And half a peanut is already 16 times more calories than a grain of wheat. So and we know the monkeys in Koshima love them. And they love, they love peanuts. So interestingly, what we found is that the macaques across the 16 individuals uh, I tested and five trials each that they would feed um, all of them across all trials atop the, the, the control substrate, so this piece of one plastic notebook, but they would avoid uh, feeding atop the fresh conspecific feces and to a lower extent, but still significantly uh, less than uh, atop the control on the feces replica, mm -hmm. the plastic feces replica. So this was, yeah, an, an interesting experiment um, at the same time it seemed that we can see from the videos that the macaques would uh, would use multiple cues sensory cues mm -hmm. to kind of guide maybe their their foraging decisions so it, <laughs> I have this this um, well famous for myself but <laughs> video of, and for anyone who's seen my uh, talks as well of that of that female who would <laughs> yeah sorry she would first go towards the the plastic pieces replica and she would smell it um, and then there is this <laughs> this behavior where she would turn her ear towards towards the feces, <laughs> and after doing these two kind of investigations, she would go towards the the conspecific. She already ate the grain of wheat atop the the piece of brown plastic notebook, and then and then she goes towards the fresh conspecific feces, and you can see that there is lots of. Um, I mean, for lack of a better word, hesitation yeah, in those, those hesitative behaviors, I right? was hesitating to say that word, but, but there is a big gap of time before she 
So she's just waiting there. She's looking around. Uh, it's also interesting. Scratching herself, yeah. so a lot she's of self-directed kind of, um, behavior. Yeah, doing that. And then finally, after after some time, just uh, just at, 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 at after two minutes or so, like she would she would pick up the grain uh, of wheat. Um, she would rub it with her hands repetitively a couple of times, and then she would eat it w- with her wrists, which was <laughs> kind of funny because she would not put her fingers like, in yeah. contact. With I mean, we'll we'll link in the show notes, we'll so. in the podcast, we'll link to the video so that anyone listening who's interested can go and check out the actual video itself, which yeah. is a, a supplemental video to the published study. So there was this experiment, and then a couple of um, additional ones. Um, one which involved more this uh, natural behavior that they do in the in the forest on mm-hmm. um, processing, so rubbing, rolling acorns mm-hmm. that they found the dig under the leaf litter to, to find these acorns, and then they would do so um, before before ingesting it. But um, individuals would would also do it with um, seemingly some kind of variability. So not all individuals would do it the same, or some would put it straight away in their mouth as well. A few of them. Um, and the last experiment was kind of um, testing for why would um, macaques wash the, the, the sweet potatoes. So I was kind of intrigued by the uh, earlier observations and experiments. And I wanted to know, or my, my kind of uh, hypothesis was that they would process or rub, wash um, the sweet potatoes to remove potentially the scent uh, that may stick on it and sand can be uh, conducive of, of parasites as well so what i did i i, I distributed two uh, i had two conditions one with where the piece of sweet potatoes was covered with sand and the other one where the piece of sweet potato was washed with tap water beforehand to kind of test also for this hypothesis there is one hypothesis that says that um, the macaques would would wash the sweet potatoes to to salt uh, potentially the sweet potatoes, and at least our experiments um, showed that they would rarely and significantly um, wash more the one covered with sand than mm-hmm. than the one that they would they would actually bite it straight away when when it's already washed with tap water. So these were yeah the kind of experiments that I started in in Koshima and got me intrigued into digging more. Yeah, I mean, that one was neat because it got to, you know, dovetail with the, the earliest studies of sweet potato washing and cultural transmission in macaques and, and actually test a little bit about what the, the critical function of that behavior ends up being. And, you know, to add on to that, I mean, those experiments are really interesting, but you probably remember when you, sh- there was another aspect to this study, which is that we also measured the parasitism of each individual. And when you show me or when we have the data, and I remember looking at my computer on the <laughs> screen, and we pulled up this chart, which was showing the relationship between the kind of hygiene axis that we came up with, with all the, you know, how Which hygienic is, each yeah. individual was based on their performance in these different kind of uh, tasks or observations, and the extent of their parasite infection with geohelminths, which are, you know, parasitic worms that, that we can all get from the soil and things like that. And that line was perfectly linear and very steep, and it just showed us that the relationship between hygiene and infection was really clear. And the more hygienic individuals had fewer parasites. And I mean, that was one of the clearest examples of like a linear trend in an ecological study I've ever seen. 
I just remember being so excited and thinking, I mean, is this really? Yeah, I remember that too. <laughs> <laughs> With your cup of coffee and kind of, yeah, maybe now I convinced you or something. <laughs> and okay, then we could do more work. Yeah, I mean, that really started like a, a, an interesting series of studies and, and got you to some pretty cool places too. So, you know, maybe without going into too much detail of them, you, you, you followed that up by heading to Africa and doing some work with great apes in, in different research centers and sanctuaries there. Yeah, so my the, the, this first project in Koshima then lined up for their experiments um, in Gabon. I wanted then I, I wanted to test great apes. Um, mm. it, on, on that topic specifically, there um, there was a theory, but there was uh, clearly a lack of uh, um, empirical evidence ex and experimental evidence. So um, so I went to Gabon to the Siemph uh, in Gabon, where I could test uh, chimpanzees, but also mandrills. Um, so captive chimpanzees and semi-free-ranging in like very large enclosures and and long-tailed macaques as well. Um, so so I could I could continue and kind of go or dig deeper into what kind of I was really interested into which kind of sensory cues they may use to or which kind of sensory cues may provoke these foraging aversion foraging mm -hmm. decisions. So I could test uh, visual, olfactory, and uh, even tactile cues um, with the chimpanzees. And um, and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you can check uh, our papers <laughs> to know the results. Uh, so I don't, well, I don't say it all, but... I think um, the really cool part of that is, as you said, you got to test this range of different um, cues that the animals could use, that the great apes could use to detect and then, av and then avoid you know, risky situations in terms of potential disease or parasitism. But the one thing out of those series of studies that really struck me was the tactile mm. thing. When you had the chimpanzees reaching into a box, I think everyone listening can probably imagine a time in their life where someone presented them with a box and said, okay, put your hand inside and see <laughs> what mystery is. And you put your hand inside and it's like, it could be this really disgusting substance or whatever, but you used... Um, scary, yeah. Dough and yeah, so I, I replicated a study actually that had been done in, in humans um, with psychologists studying studying disgust and and who were particularly interested in, into this tactile cues and with the theory that in nature um, substrates um, or substances with physical features such as softness and moistness are usually uh, pretty good at <laughs> cultivating or harboring mm -hmm. um, um, yeah pathogens um, or growth of, of, of bacteria and um, and so what they used was this either a dough um, yeah dough substrate or as a control a dry and hard piece of rope and so I placed either of those inside an opaque box the chimps would see me placing a piece of banana inside the box but in order to reach for that piece of banana they would have to, to touch the substrate and they didn't know what was in there so they knew there was a piece of banana but what happened is that after touching the dough substrate yeah we would observe lots of uh, recoiling of, of the hand <laughs> and not going further or not going a second time for it uh, whereas after with the rope condition they would reach for the banana and put it straight to the mouth so mm -hmm. um, yeah again the videos of that are just fascinating and i mean when you see and every time i've shown this to an audience when you see the chimpanzee reach into the box and physically recoil in you know pretty much almost exactly the same way a human would it's hard not to feel a sense of 
you know, sympathy with the, <laughs> the feeling that the animal is having. Um, and that could easily lead us to, you know, at least hypothesizing that the motivation for the behavior is similar to ours as well, is that they're actually disgusted by this. But so around this time as well, and I think this is something really rare for somebody at your career stage at that time as a PhD student, still candidate, um, you were invited to host a meeting at the Royal Society on parasite avoidance and disgust. And at that meeting, which you did uh, not alone, but with, with colleagues, including um, Val Curtis, who was one of the, the main spearheads of that, that yeah. initiative. And Dr. Rachel McMillan from the Open University. Right. And in that meeting, you were able to bring together not just animal behaviorists and biologists, but also human psychologists. And so can you maybe just walk us through what that experience was like for you as somebody just kind of starting in a research career still, um, but now being, you know, the leader of a meeting at the Royal Society and having really world experts in all, in all of these topics? Yeah, so I guess I was <laughs> lucky or, I mean, <coughs> Val, Valerie, Valerie Curtis, um, Prof Curtis contacted me because she was basically too busy to, to take on, 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 on that meeting and uh, she basically proposed that opportunity or that she had a colleague who wanted to put together that kind of meeting with her and she provided the opportunity for me to to actually co-organize it with with um, Dr. Macmillan and um, and yeah I was I was really really excited uh, about that this the idea of this meeting um, about the evolution of um, pathogen and parasite avoidance behaviors was to gather um, <laughs> a bunch of scientists uh, but working on very different model species um, and so with Rachel, we, we managed to, to, to gather people studying Sinoabditis elegans, from Sinoabditis elegans, uh, this 302 neurons uh, warm, <laughs> <laughs> up to humans and everything in between almost. So from birds, um, yeah, fish, uh, kangaroos, <laughs> primates. Uh, so, and, and being able to be uh, all together in this small castle like an old estate <laughs> yeah. in the british countryside in, in buckinghamshire in, in the uk um was uh, the perfect environment and the perfect size as well i think that's yeah. also feedback we, we've got um, we were um don't remember exa the exact number of the the, the the registrants but i think we were not over 30 30 or 40 uh, yeah. in total in that meeting with a f yeah maybe uh, 10 15 keynote speakers and and that was the perfect um, yeah size and place to, to to just brainstorm and and exchange um, avenues for for the future of the, of the field and that's where I yeah I've made great connections as well with whom I um, I still have contact today mm -hmm. um, so for of course yeah at my at my stage it was it was a big step for me and and uh, and being given that opportunity by <laughs> kind of the expert uh, <laughs> uh, on the human maybe side of it, but, but with all the, the theory about the <coughs> evolution of it as well, was just uh, uh, a dream come true. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a good place to return to Val Curtis because, I mean, she unfortunately um, a couple of years ago departed, or last year departed uh, us, 
And, but I think she, in the short time that you knew her, ended up being a really important mentor and role model. And she herself also was engaged in so many different things, not just the science, but also humanitarian work. And so maybe you want to just talk a little bit about who she was and what she meant to you. Yes, for sure. Um, so my kind of connection to, to Prof. Curtis started when I was, uh, yeah, I was an undergrad. And so just after the, the, the Koshima um, chapter, <laughs> I wanted to start this PhD on, 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 on this topic of mm -hmm. the origins of disgust and hygiene. And then that's how I found more about the uh, literature about it. And of course, lots of papers written by Val and a book more particularly called Don't Touch, uh, Don't Look. Um, which, yeah, which I've, I've well, I, I, so after, after that, I wanted to meet her and I just got uh, the opportunity before returning to Japan to, to visit her in London at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She invited me over. We had a, a cup of tea in her office uh, full of fake poop. So I was kind <laughs> of also, wow, I found my pair there, <laughs> my peer. Um, and now my <laughs> office is the one that has all the fake poop in it. <laughs> yes, I'm leaving. That's my present to you. Um, and yeah, we exchanged. Uh, she, she was also very, very excited about um, the Koshima results um, and what, um, what I was discussing to her about. Um, so that, that's where she, when she, she, she gave me her, her book and dedicated it mm -hmm. for me. And after that, we, we had been in touch all along. She was part of my um, PhD committee. And yeah, and Val is not only important for, for, for all of what she has put for disgust research, but also the applications of mm -hmm. it, and something I'm also very interested in it. So um, she had started campaigns promoting hand washing based on disgust and showing how the power of this emotion could be translated into promoting mm -hmm. um, sanitary behaviors, um, which is super interesting. So she had done lots of works um, in India, on the African continent as well, and in different places. Uh, and she was, and she still is like a, definitely a, a big role model to me. So, but unfortunately, yeah, the, the irony of it is that she, she left us recently, um, but, um, I was able to attend her last lecture, which is online, if you're interested in it, where she's reflecting about all her decades in <laughs> public health and disgust, mm -hmm. um, which is yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it was sad to see her go and that the, during a pandemic, but unrelated to it, I, at least directly, for somebody who had, was such a monumental figure in public health and hygiene. But so you said something really important, too, was that you know, she was uh, influential in being able to apply the ideas um, from uh, from the research on disgust and, and how it can maybe be used for humanitarian purposes and help, um, you know, especially in parts of the world where sanitation is not, uh, is not necessarily as developed as it could be. But so I think that's also something that's really important to you is being able to apply the knowledge you gain through science and research. And so maybe you can just highlight some of the ways that you want to that you're thinking about that you could maybe use your you know research um, for good in that in that area yeah so that got me definitely thinking about the, the applications of it and so far it has always been this this fascination for <laughs> for the origins of disgust and hygiene and on the other side kind of my uh, involvement or activism or um, 
dedication and, and passion for, for, for conservation. And, and then I realized that maybe yeah, those two fields are not necessary, uh, shouldn't be necessarily apart. Um, and that there could be ways also to, to, to merge both in a way, similarly as Val put, put it up for, for promoting sanitary behavior. Mm -hmm. I think we are in an era where, as we are currently experiencing, um, yeah, pathogens also um, transmit from one host to another, including our closest living uh, phylogenetic relatives, so non-human primates, in particular great apes, and uh, so one way this could be done would be to actually work on, on, on human disgust and promoting behaviors um, that would enhance distances with wildlife, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if we take the example of um, a touristic context, we, we, and, and, and on social media, on the internet, um, even including in in academia itself, we, we see a lot of proximity sometimes even mm -hmm. so with our um, research species from, from some researchers, but also in, in, so in a touristic context with people visiting these emblematic species and wanting to take a, a selfie with it or, or wanting to get very close and even having physical contact mm -hmm. with them. And uh, well, to me, <laughs> this is wrong in so many ways, but <laughs> I think there is, uh, and in one way would be also the risk of um, pathogen transmission yeah. that can uh, expose expose them. So um, people have maybe no idea about that, or at least before COVID. Um, so kind of raising the risk of this pathogen transmission could be one way of enhancing um, more appropriate distance with, with wildlife. And that's what I would be uh, interested in, in, in testing mm -hmm. in one way or another. So that's one part. And then, and then the other part is still about human-wildlife interactions. And, and there, are, there are negative interactions all over the world as well, to not say conflict. Uh, and some of them are, are related to, to actually foraging behaviors of, of, uh, of wildlife. So knowing more about um, these adaptive systems in wildlife and designing um, measures that are rather based on, on the ecology and the evolution of the species is, to me, yeah, would, would be very, very interesting to test through different sensory cues. And, mm -hmm. and with the new technology we have, or or even very simple designs, but uh, I think it would be interesting to test uh, around agricultural fields, for example, mm -hmm. and, and, and just to think about it from, uh, from different perspectives, depending on the on the species. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of want to go sideways a little bit with this, and maybe away from the research and in, into the another aspect of you, I think, that you know people can appreciate is that ever since you started here, and you mentioned it earlier about activism, you've always had a really strong interest in not just being a typical grad student and working on your research project and writing papers and whatever, but also experiencing things and doing things. And most, a lot of those things, you know, were related to, to travel um, and were stemming from compassion of people, of the environment. And you also got into a lot of things here, like being a regular, uh, host of and producer of the podcast, the Primate Cast for Conservation Voices. But how, like, when did that start for you? And how, you know, why is that such an important part of who you are as well, in addition to doing research? And, and maybe you can touch, like, use some examples of the initiatives that you've been working on since being a, 
at uh, Kyoto University. Yeah, well, I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly like when when it started, but but to me, from the time you join the field of of, of research and, and animal behavior, yeah, I I don't know. It has always been important <laughs> to uh, um, to not only observe them or, or test them, but uh, yeah, find find ways. Um, to raise awareness about 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 different issues either surrounding them, but um, more more I learned about about the field of animal behavior, and more I would reflect on our own human behavior. So, mm-hmm. um, and not that I'm that old, but at that time <laughs> I was just I couldn't. Yeah, I, I, I needed to be very active in that. It was very important to me. Not that I'm completely inactive today, but <laughs> <laughs> just just to to mention. And so when I when I arrived here, there were also opportunities to to really to really get engaged in that. And I guess once also you become a, stu- a master student or a PhD student in that field, I felt it it gave you also it's. I don't know if it's yeah, if it's bad to say, but maybe I was thinking I have more credibility that now mm-hmm. I can I can really do things sure. and people would maybe take me more seriously. So, so that's when I think most of my uh, initiatives in that like started. So, I was really into to the podcast. I was not necessarily very very good in podcasting, <laughs> but I just I, I was just thinking that yeah, going to all these conferences, meeting meeting all these uh, researchers, conservationists. Like, I was just I just wanted to reach more people and well, so I think one thing that maybe we differed in the beginning too is that you know in this podcast I was always interviewing established scientists mostly and I remember you pushing back and saying well can we interview more young people and students and things and so in your case you went to those student concert the, the student conference in conservation science like two or three of them in different parts of the world and was a correspondent for for, for the primate cast and conservation voices there and so I think it's like you're you know um, I think you you you're invested also in the ideas of young people in that sense too, and wanted to share a lot of the what what they're doing. Which I think now, especially with the climate change issue and people like Greta Thunberg out there, uh, really attest to something that was a good initiative for sure. Because more and more, those young voices are the ones that seem to be the most reasonable and rational. Yeah. Yes. So so conservation voices was was one way. Um, and although it, it still involved lots of travels, which I think mm-hmm. I've also reflected on that since. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah, the kind of paradox, I guess. Um, and and then a, another initiative that I started here was a concept session. So I was also kind of, I realized, um, the, the, I realized the potential for having more outreach initiatives at Kyoto University, but including Inuyama as well. Um, and I had the feeling that there was also a lack of it. Um, but but lots of people still coming over, or even lots of resources already here that I thought, and by resources I mean <laughs> researchers, professors that were not exploited <laughs> well enough, um, to reach to the public, not to other scientists, but to, uh, to have interactions wi- with the public. So. I was also very much interested in documentaries related to environmental issues, conservation, and I thought, well, we have, yeah, maybe we have a, a bit of budget, why not um, designing um, a student group um, where we could screen documentaries, having 
topics like each month and inviting an expert to interact and ex exchange with the public about that about that topic uh, and then that's how that's how it started um, mainly with uh, international researchers at first but as we grew and also getting uh, diversity in the group and we, we also wanted more and more to reflect on, on Japanese researchers and activists filmmakers um, and yeah, that led to, to, to great uh, connections as well. Mm -hmm. Talking about uh, ivory, uh, ivory trade in Japan, uh, making a, a podcast also uh, on that topic, or whaling, <laughs> all yeah. this kind of, of, of yeah, I mean, it was topics a, and issues. Um, and it was neat that they were also open to the public. So especially for the issues surrounding whaling, for example, you would have members of the public come in and you, you know, we had translators there and uh, it was this really kind of high-level discussion between people about um, those issues. So I think, you know, not just having, from our perspective, this kind of, you know, academic perspective, we also have people from all kind of spectra um, of society coming and contributing their ideas. So that was, I think, really valuable for everybody and especially the students in our program, I mean, to be able to see that in action. And so it was a really impressive um, impressive initiative that was going on um, but I guess it's also started I mean the, I, I, I was empowered by that with uh, SICASP so right. the <laughs> Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology where we are sitting in the studio right now and and having these uh, SICOM workshops yeah, yeah really empowered me into into leading or initiating this kind this kind of activities so yeah it, it's been really important to us over the years to kind of do whatever we can to facilitate that in students and encourage them to get involved in whatever way they can um, we've recently seen some success from that too with with our graduate students you know winning or becoming runners-up in um, thesis presentation competitions across japan and um, you know, various people starting to get more engaged in, uh, you know, in media and social media about specific topics. So, um, yeah, I, think, I mean, you're a really good role model in that sense as well, because we can always have someone to point to like, hey, you know, if you have an interest in doing something, you know, we'll support it and just go ahead. So circling back then just to um, to kind of, you know, you finished your PhD in, in 2018. Um, Okay. Sorry, 19. Yeah, the <laughs> pandemic has the time warp going on here. 2019. Uh, but then you've, you came back for a, a postdoc as well here, the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, um, working more uh, with Dr. Ikuma Adachi here and myself as well, and with the chimpanzees. So maybe, um, you know, just to close out that part of the interview, can you describe kind of what the point of that is and what research you've been doing with the chimpanzees here and where, where you really think this this kind of field of disgust um, and landscapes of disgust in in animals is kind of heading. Yeah, um, so I came back here to, after, after looking at, at the behavioral side of, um, of parasite avoidance and the origins of disgust, I was just, I wanted to complete the picture by kind of getting deeper into the cognitive and physiological mechanisms behind it. And so that's how, yeah, we started thinking of how, how we could test that. And, and the chimpanzee lab at PRI was, uh, was kind of the perfect place for that with those uh, cognitive tasks using touch screens, for example, on a voluntary basis with the chimpanzees. Um, 
or even using eye trackers now where you can test different um, visual stimuli and see how the chimpanzee would react to it and would look at it. Um, so yeah, so I, um, I started experiments which are still actually running or will keep <laughs> being run even after tomorrow. <laughs> and, um, and the idea was to use the, the, the paradigm already present. So, so these chimpanzees are actually quite famous for a number of cognitive tasks, including one which is named the number ordering task, where they would have to touch numerals in an ascending order on touch screens, basically showing how, how they would be able to, to count <laughs> um, and the, the cognitive mechanism of it. So I was thinking that that's the perfect task to mm -hmm. test how different sensory cues may affect their cognitive performance, for example. Um, how we could, yeah, how we could uh, test that, and also just just kind of going deeper into the comparison of different how different emotions and threats may 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 have um, that kind of impact. So trying to to test and compare disgust versus fear, uh, eliciting stimuli. Yeah, there was a, mm -hmm. another interest here. And this keeps being expanded with, uh, with now uh, an eye tracking study. Mm -hmm. So maybe there will be more on that <laughs> in the forthcoming We're podcast. Have, right, we'll have to leave a little bit of mystery with this because the, the data are still incoming and results are not yet um, out there. But uh, I, I do think it's fascinating, you know, in the lab, you have the opportunity to control the experiments that you're doing, but more and more we see um, scientists, uh, animal behavior scientists being interested in kind of opposing these ideas of landscapes of fear versus landscapes of disgust, where in nature an animal would be presented with all kinds of different, you know, cost benefit situations, and they have to make decisions, um, you know, based on that information that they have, or, uh, you know, um, so this has a name even now, Landscape of Peril. <laughs> the Landscape of Peril, exactly, yeah, right, which, which is fantastic. Combine um, both kinds of threats, and these two, predation and parasitism, are two very important evolutionary pressures yeah. um, that many animals would have to, to deal with. So so that, that's fascinating, and being able to even test it in a, yeah, in a lab. Um, is, is definitely definitely exciting and and so one of the comments I, I, I guess sometimes we, we would get um, from maybe outsiders' perspectives into investigating disgust in non-human primates is yes okay now you have got the, the behavioral side but if you really want to name it disgust maybe what's, <laughs> what's going on with the the cognition behind it or, or even mm -hmm. the physiological reactions mm -hmm. and, and this is something that yeah, you can do non-invasively in a way now mm -hmm. with, with the new technology. So, so that's where yeah, where um, what I'm currently on what I'm currently working on. Yeah. Uh, but as for the future, I I would yeah, I think I would go back to that connection with uh, conservation, and I would be very interested into how we can use a landscape yeah. of disgust, a landscape of peril, um, to to drive animal behavioral decisions and maybe human also behavioral mm. decisions so okay well just to wrap up this interview um i'm not going to ask you about what you're doing next because i think we should leave <laughs> some shroud of mystery uh 
for any interested listeners can see where Cecile pops up next. But uh, I do want to ask you to just maybe take a moment and reflect on nine years of being at Kyoto University's Primate Research Institute. Um, what stands out for you? What, what do you think you're going to hold on to? Should I put a long silence? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'll edit it out later anyway, so you look <laughs> spot on. Well, obviously, the people. <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely the people. But you could say, okay, beside the people, the chimps, <laughs> the other primates. <laughs> um, and, and, and the place, um, all the, the surrounding environment in and out of Pirai, it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's, it feels like, <laughs> I don't know, it feels like it's, it's at home and, and like a family here. Um, <laughs> mm. I mean, you, you would see people walking on flip-flops in the corridor and <laughs> it's just, yeah, it feels, oh, you can, and the institute. I don't know if I should say that, but the institute is always open, or you always have access to it. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, over the nine years, or at least the, the, the number of years where I was in Inuyama, I would probably spend more time yeah, at the institute than at my, at my place, at least as a student. Um, sure. Not to encourage that kind of behavior, but <laughs> just, uh, just to Work say... Work-life balance is very important. To yes, say the understand. truth, <laughs> <laughs> at least as a, yeah, as a PhD student. So, and yeah, going from, you know, having access to the studio, to the library, going from office to office, um, SciCast, the Parasite Lab, the Chimpanzee Lab, it was just, just very stimulating. Um, and uh, and 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 a, a strong sense of uh, of community, at least with with the yeah with the other students and and professors as well. So that's definitely yeah the kind of um, memories and anecdotes. <laughs> I won't say here that I would remember. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Some are not fit for the air for sure. Okay. Well, Cecile Sarabian, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Primate Cast. It Hopefully not for the last time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there should be more from you in the future. But I wish you the best of luck. It's been an honor and a, a pleasure and definitely will miss you. And reciprocally, um, yeah, all the best to Dr. Andrew McIntosh. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where the next podcast would be. So do I. Well, let's see. <laughs> I'll try and get this one up as soon as possible. Thanks again and all the best for the future. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to The Primate Cast podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife research, to the conservation of species, and to the dissemination of scientific knowledge. The podcast is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Kyoto University Primate Research Institute. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at theprimatecast. Conservation Voices is an offshoot of the Primate Cast, hosted and produced by Dr. Cecile Sarabier.